Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. First of all, Happy New Year. It is 2018. I'm kind of glad 2017 is over. Personally, it was a good year for me. Pers- great year, actually, for me personally. But uh, with the new year brings maybe some new things that the rest of this country and this world can focus on. And this week we are going to focus on <laughs> the great yet obscure pop duo from the 80s, Sly Fox, by talking to one half of that duo, Michael Camacho. Now, he and uh, collaborator Gary Mudbone Cooper came together to form Sly Fox in a sort of boy band fashion, honestly. We talk about that a little bit in here. Um, And they only ever put out one album and had one hit. And it's this one, Let's Go All The Way. It reached number seven in 1986. The album came out of the same title, but it's super obscure. Like, the, the, you can't, this C, this album never made it to CD. You can't buy it or stream it or anything like that. So weird that a band that had a, a hit as huge as this one would be considered obscure today. It doesn't make any sense to me, but yet that's the story. So anyway, we hear from Michael about how they came together, why it didn't last very long, what the fallout was, all those kinds of things. Um, I got to tell you, this was a listener request. The man... Jay Sabluski, love Jay, requested these guys kind of a while ago. It took me a while to pin one of them down, but I'm so glad that I did. So thank you, Jay, for doing this. I will tell you there's not a ton of music in this episode because they only really have one album to even talk about. So um, it's mostly talking, but I hope that's okay. These days, now we didn't get too into it, uh, and I'll explain why in the postscript at the end of the episode. Uh, We had to kind of cut it a little bit short. These days, Michael manages a bar in New York City called Ruby Bar. And that's Rue, R-U-E, dash the letter B, bar. Okay? Ruby Bar. He manages the bar today. And uh, so when we talked, he was calling from his office at the bar. Most people, they, tell you, they probably don't remember the name Sly Fox. 
and no offense, I doubt they could name the two of you guys, but everybody, when they hear Let's Go All the Way, that, that has to ring a bell. That was such a big hit and a, and a great song back at the time. It seemed to me that you guys sort of appeared and then disappeared out of nowhere. How did Sly Fox even begin? Were you two put together by a manager somewhere? I don't mean to imply that you were a boy band, but is it some of, one of those kind of things where it's like there's a producer and he says, I think I got these two talented kids, let's put them together, write some songs, produce their album, and then send them out there? Or were you and Gary kind of gigging together, friendly? How did that work? That's a great question, John. Uh, <laughs> that's a loaded, locked and loaded question, and I'm, I'm salivating to answer it because there's a lot to it. Um, okay. And ironically enough, your allusion to a boy band in that, that's a very astute question mm-hmm. and or point because in lieu of the boy bands of the time, essentially we were put together like a as it were, the boy bands were at the time. So in lieu of that, we were an anomaly in that we were the real deal in terms of music, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of our musical background, uh, our level of artistic uh, musical musicality. So we were really musicians, you know. We were singers who were musicians. Okay. So we were singer-songwriters, and Gary, my partner, was... one of the original former singers of the Funkadelics. Mm-hmm. And he sang with uh, with Gucci and Gucci Collins, and you know he was part of that whole movement with the Clinton, George Clinton, and all and Brides of Frankenstein, you name it. Yeah. So yeah. the Mothership. So he, he was already like he was first of all he was several years older than me, so he had been in the business professionally longer than I than I was already at a young age so and i started out as a ironically enough a team that i had people my first production management contract when i was 14 with these people were trying to make me a teen idol at the time mm-hmm. and it didn't work out and then i went to england and um i had a production deal there and and, and that was born out of uh in 1982 i lived there for a year they flew me there I used to sing. I first of all, just to be to, for the audience's sake, I started out as a crooner, and my role models and who I aspired to be liken myself to or emulate were Frank Sinatra, uh-huh. Tony Tony Bennett. I mean, I listened to Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. and I never intended to be. A pop star. I really? wanted to be. I wanted to be an old school. So you know, like I wanted to. I was more. I identified more with the Rat Pack. Okay, that was that was oh. what I was. That's what I was aiming to do, and I was aiming to do it successfully. You know, and gain notoriety from it because I felt that that music was still viable. Anyway, in 1980, I had moved to Los Angeles. Uh, a relative of mine uh, who was originally a recording engineer, chief engineer for Barry White. May he rest in peace. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, he ended up, they parted ways, and he ended up working for one of the mogul guys or 
big record guys from Blue Records in Columbia back in the old days was a guy named Artie Rip. Artie Rip and 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 company started Billy Joel's career. Oh, yes. So so I went to California to be with my uncle who was a chief engineer for Artie Rip's studio, and I was in that circle of all those great musicians in Los Angeles in the 80s, which, you know, was brimming. You know, I mean, I was in the studio recording with the guys who worked with the Steve Miller Band and Van Morrison Mm. Band and you name it. I was surrounded by some of the great musicians, and I was in the studio recording as a young guy, you know, young, young artist. And are you singing backup with these people? What are you doing in the no, studio? No, no, I was I was actually in the studio recording for my own project. And the musicians that were on the road, like Gary Malibur, who played with Van Morrison, he was on the road, he recorded, and was on the road with Van Morrison, and Steve Miliband, and Springsteen, and you name it, and a whole bunch of other guys that were part of that cabal of musicians, studio mm-hmm. cats, that I was, you know, blessed with to work at at the age of 20 1920 you know and and um it was amazing because i I also got to write with some of these guys we we would collaborate it was just a phenomenal phenomenal time and i was um an ornery artist who was restless and you know i i needed things to happen and it wasn't happening and basically, I was with the camp of people that started Billy Joel's career. They were no longer with Billy Joel, hmm. uh, but they had started his career. That's and, crazy. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, they were the guys that had his initial deal that was not exactly, you know, kosher right. for him. Right. And um, and they they found him in Long Island, you know, because they were all Long Island guys pretty much, except for Artie Rip. I think he was a Brooklyn boy. So I was in that circle. And... That didn't work out. And then what followed thereafter was my production deal that I got in England. Went to England, was there for a year, didn't work out. I came back to the States. And I got a call. I had a, a manager and a musician friend of mine. We were working on doing some music in New York. And this manager guy passed my tape around to people of some of the productions I did in L.A. and, and London. Somehow it got into the hands of Ted Courier, who was the producer for Sly Fox. And Ted oh. Courier, Ted Courier had a, had a production uh, company called Platinum Vibe, I think it was called. It's a long yeah. time ago, so. And uh, yeah, I got this. I got this disease called CRS. I don't know if you heard of it, John. Yeah. CRS. It? Yeah, it's called. Uh, it's can't remember shit. <laughs> so, so I have to I have to get into the file into the computer file to just see where sure. you know. So it got into the hands of Ted Courier, and what had happened was the story I know and was told and I believe to be true was that Gary, my former partner, and also known Gary Cooper was his name. How funny uh-huh. is that? Uh-huh. Um, uh, his nickname was Mudbone. So Mudbone was him and Gary Scheider, who were from the uh, Funkadelics. They were the singers for the Funkadelics, okay? They were two mm-hmm. of the singers, anyway, for the Funkadelics. We're going to do a duo record, Ted Curry. 
and they had, Chad had a production agreement with Capital EMI. I guess Gar, the two Garys, Gary Scheider, Gary Cooper, uh, didn't work out, and Gary Scheider decided he didn't want to do it, I guess, and uh, and Mudbone, Gary Cooper, decide, decided to stick with the project, the concept of a duo. Okay. So they, I don't know, I don't know, everybody takes credit for whose idea it was. I don't know whose idea it was, but I frankly and don't really care. But they wanted to put together, Ted Courier and company wanted to put together a duo, an interracial duo. Uh-huh. And it was never in the history of the record industry of an interracial duo. You had the Righteous Brothers, right? You had Sam mm-hmm. and Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget who else. Simon and Garfunkel, so, Hall and Oates, Simon, everybody's right, white. Simon, or black, yeah. Right. So, I mean, you even had Sonny and Cher. I mean, sure. an Alfino, but there was never an interracial duo, right? Yep. Anyway, so they were looking for a, a, a white singer who was soulful, you know, mm-hmm. who could sound mm-hmm. black, you know. And even though I started out as a crooner, I uh, also loved, I was always about the R&B singers, you know. Uh, I listened to all the R&B singers. They were my, sure. outside of the, the Rat Pack and all those great singers from the jazz era, straight ahead in the bebop, and Al Jarreau was my big influence. There you go. Way. Love Al Jarreau. So, may he rest in peace, and I was fortunate enough to meet him. But anyway, I mean, I listened to Marvin Gaye, you name it. You know, sure. I listened to them all. So, they heard my demos from London and L.A. and wanted to meet a year prior to that, uh, Bill O'Coin, who managed Kiss and uh, Billy Idol, he wanted to manage me. He really? Manage my yeah. So, but he was an odd character. Okay, so... Yeah, his more, name comes up on here a lot, by the way. Yeah, was that yeah, the was, deterrent for you? You didn't. He seemed a little yeah, weird, well, so you didn't want to well, be a part of it? Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, I was not of that persuasion. He wanted more than Got just it. music. And, uh, okay. and all due respect. And yeah. I just, you know, I have, you know, I have no issue with that. I'm not, you know, sure. I mean. Uh, but he had a crush on issue. you. Yeah, he yeah. had a crush on me. He wanted more. And yeah. he claimed, and I, I, I say this gently, he claimed that he slept with all of his artists that he represented, which I didn't believe. Because I knew, mm. you know, I, I knew I was friendly with Paul Stanley. Now, we never talked about it. Yeah. Paul Stanley was a great guy, and he dated women. And I, you know, like, and, you know, Billy Idol that I didn't know too well. I would see him. We were actually in the recording studio when we were doing the Sly Fox record. He was there, but he was kind of a spunky guy. So I don't see that. I didn't. I thought he was. I, I felt may he rest in peace, Bill O'Coin. Yeah, was using that as a ploy to get me to, you know, to, to convince me. You know, probably. So okay. So so wow. That's a little little border, border, bordering on the salacious, okay? So, but that's beautiful. Uh, that's good color. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and so in 83, and it was like around, I want to say November of 83, I get the call from my would-be manager at the top saying this guy, Ted Curry, wants to meet me. I have a project that they want to do, and they love your voice, and we'd like to meet you and see if you'd be interested in jumping on board with this project. 
So I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, it's a duo project with a singer from the Funkadelics, and he's a, he's a you know, he's a bad badass, and uh-huh. they need somebody who's a badass because it's not it's not going to work otherwise, you know. Sure. And they want it, they want to do his interracial thing. So I said, okay. I said, I'll meet with him, but I'm not really, my my my, my heart, my my gut tells me this is not what I want to be doing. You know, this, mm-hmm. is not, this is not my idea of how I want my career to go, you know, so. Yeah. I uh, met with Ted Courier, played me some stuff that they were demoing. He actually was sitting in his car. <laughs> he had a couple couple of coffees. He had the heat on in the car, and we're listening to this music, and he's talking to me about, you know, uh, the possibility. Yeah. So there it started. And okay. And I, I had people in my camp that said, you know, you should do it. It's a stepping stone. You know, you can always break and go solo, blah, 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 blah. And so goes it. I, I yeah, ended up okay. yeah, uh, signing in and, and doing And that's how it's Now, done. let me ask you about this Tim Courier. I've never heard of him. But one thing that strikes me with Lifehawks is that it sounds to me like a very producer-driven uh, artistic endeavor. It, it yes. reminds me a little bit of The System. Do you remember The yeah. System with David of Frank course. and Mike Murphy? So oh, of course. Yeah, I knew those guys. Okay. So I had David Frank on here. I love him. And they uh it your Slyfox reminds me of a little bit of that. Like it's it's the mastermind it's the ideas of a producer mastermind who's got his finger on the pulse of many different genres. That's the beauty I think of even a even a single like Let's Go All the Way. It's touching on so many different genres of music in one song. There's R and B, hip hop. There's some heavy metal guitar. There's some psychedelia. You could almost classify that as any kind of music you want. And that, to me, comes mm-hmm. from the mind of a very savvy producer. So what else? Maybe I'm wrong about any all of this. But if I'm not, what was Tim Courier doing that made you think this guy really was going somewhere? What else had he done? I think what he has claimed to fame was, that's a very loaded question, um, <laughs> Very loaded there, John. Okay. Um, he, let me just give you a little hint of his background, the little I recall. He was, okay. I believe, a DJ. Perhaps he did a little radio. I don't know for certain. Don't quote me on that. But I okay. think, but he was a DJ. You know, at that, that time you had Jelly Bean Benitez. Yes. He had all these guys. Good reference. turn producers. Yep. They didn't know, didn't know, they weren't musicians, okay? Right. So your question is astute, right on point, definitively so. So okay. so he was that guy, and he somehow had something to do with Atomic Dog. I think he mixed it or oh. something. Okay. Uh, so you might want to look that up. I don't remember all the definitive details, but he had okay. something to do. That gave him his he that gave him his mark and his his claim to fame, if you will. Got it. That mm-hmm. led Capitol Records to give him a production deal to produce artists. Now he didn't do the arranging, you know. He was oh. like the third. No, he had a guy by the name of David Spradley who was also part of that uh, funkadelic, you know, Clinton mob, if you will. Sure. Um, out of out of Detroit, David Spradley, Asian American, great guy, great talent. 
keyboard player. He was the guy that came up with all the fucking sounds. Really? He was the guy that, you know, we, look, me and Gary had our influence because we were both creative. Uh But it made his job a lot easier because we were both very creative. But Ted was the guy that said, okay, I like that, I don't like that, push that button maybe, let's see if we can do this, Mm. you know. He was that guy. Who to me, he was more, he's, he, to me, he was more, I would call it executive producer than anything Got else, it. not a okay. real producer. That's Who wrote fun. the songs? Both yeah. Gary and I collectively wrote the songs. You and Gary wrote Let's Go All The Way. Well, Gary, Gary, it was his idea. Okay. I helped, I helped with this, the sound of the vocals and the influence of the vocals and where that part of it uh, uh the direction of where that was going. You know, we had our issues about the songwriting part, which we were supposed to share everything, and it didn't happen that way. Uh, and that's that's the, that's the dirty side of the business that, you know, it's tricky to talk about. Um, like, people got credit on songs we wrote, David Spradley and a guy by the name of David Sanchez, who was a writer, singer, like a singer-songwriter guy. You know, when we wrote it, they gave, they tossed those guys a bone. I, you know, we had issues. I felt I should have gotten credit for, you know, let's go all the way. And they, uh-huh. we had agreed to do that, but it didn't happen. We, because we were trying to create a sound, just like the Beatles were creating a sound or any of those bands. And I got, I got nudged out because I was the kid on the block. Uh, That's hmm. how I see it. I was the, I was the baby of the clan. Okay. So, and they were all like, well, you know, we're doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that, and you're getting an opportunity. But the reality is, and I, and I say this mindfully and carefully and not to sound to the audience, please, like I'm patting myself on the back, if you will. But my sound was a big part of why we had some success, mm. you know, and a lot of people would attest to that, but it's not the end of who doesn't matter in the large scheme of things. It doesn't matter, but yeah. and I couldn't. I don't lose sleep over that or care one way or the other. But my sound with Gary's was ostensibly to others that I've spoken to about it. Was sure. the sound? Was the sound? Okay. We had a magic vocally, Gary and I. That was pretty astounding. I mean, yeah, you did. We for two guys that never worked together before. That was a cosmic fluke, slap yep. box. Yep. Okay? We, when we met, when we met each other for the first time, we met up on the Upper West Side on Columbus Avenue where I lived near Lincoln Center. Uh-huh. And we went into a, an ice cream parlor that had an upright, old, upright mm-hmm. piano. And I sat down at the piano and started running some of my tunes by Gary, and he started harmonizing. We had an impeccable sensibility as if we had been working together for 100 years. And that I have to, yeah, I mean, it was so much so that after we broke up, which I know I'm kind of jumping ahead, but to to quickly kind of allude to, we were offered to do projects, you know, again. And I would have done it because what we did musically you know, I have to say we were we were monsters together. You know, we were. Yeah. And even though and the and the 
in the uh, in the irony of it is even though I didn't want to be part of a duo or a band scenario, if you will, and I had been part of bands when I was growing up, but I the, I could never refute what we did musically together. And um, I mean, we made history. Yeah. The first, you know. But anyway, I wanted to make that quick reference. No, that's interesting. Um, let me ask you real quick. What, a friend of mine named Ken Mills brought up to me just recently that there are a lot of, and I, I guess I knew this, but it hadn't really sunk in, that there are a lot of Beatle references in Let's Go All the Way, not just in terms of things like Eight Days a Week or Rich Man or Apple or whatever, but even the structure is a little bit like Strawberry Fields Forever. Do you have, do you know anything, was that intentional or was that just, are these just good solid songwriting bones and they just happen to be applied to that song and the Beatles song. Well, if you really listen to the melody, everybody out there listens to the melody. Uh-huh. Let's go all the way as I am the Wallace. <laughs> it is. You're right. Yeah. It's I am okay. the Wallace. I, let's go all the way. Let's go all the way. Yeah. Let's go all the way. Ready? Yeah. I am the Eggman. It sure I is. I am the Eggman. Yeah. I am the Walrus. It's almost, it's it's right in there, borderline. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. so the whole, when we, and that's the thing that I'm speaking to in terms of sound. You know, I had a real strong sense of the Beatles, not that Gary did, but I had a strong sense of the Beatles sound and and I said to Gary, this is the direction we should be going in with every fucking song. Yeah. We were too diverse. The, 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 the reason why that album didn't, be, didn't arrive at a, at a place, it didn't definitively make its mark uh-huh. because it was too all over the place. Really? And yet, well, yeah, I mean, the thing is this. You know when you hear a record in the old days when you heard a record and it was the, you couldn't get a sense of the direction yeah. of the oh, artist yeah. conceptually, right? Even now, for that matter, I'm sure. Although I don't listen to records or music anymore, really, like I used to. I only listen to the old stuff. Right. But even though our record was diverse, stylistically speaking, every song could have been on a record or a single from a record that conceptually was cons- consistent and, yeah. and commit, right? So, you know, like, stay true.
Number one dance chart, club club chart song. Really nice. Yeah, yeah, it was a big record. Okay. Um, you know, won't let you go. The ballad I wrote was a beauty. Hey, gang, let's break in for a little business here. First of all, I wanted to let everyone know, thank you for sharing our last episode with Brad Elvis. As always, I want to read off some of those names. Christopher Lancaster, John Eisberg, hope I'm saying these right. The Romantics, thank goodness, the band. Jay Sabluski, my man. Grown Up Rock and Sonny Pooney. Cheryl Hangland. Uh, this is an interesting Where It Begins colon cu music documentary 1977 to 2000 i don't know what that is but thank you uh save rock and metal our mysterious friends out there deepest purple pie um coincidentally brad elvis did not share this one and you guys know how that that just gets to me i i'm guessing he didn't like it uh, because he was on the rock and roll geek show with michael butler a couple of months ago and i know he shared that one so he must just not have liked our interview, which is fine. I, it wasn't my favorite interview either, honestly, but uh, whatever. And then BJ Cramp, the guy who requested it, I haven't even heard from him. So let me, a little tip. If I do a show for you, uh, you know, a thank you is always appreciated. And if, you know, thank you or gratitude is not really your thing... Let's at least engage about it. You know what I mean? Like, hey, that Brad Elvis was a dud. Or, you were terrible. Or, that was the best thing I ever heard. I mean, whatever it is, but let's talk about it. The whole point is to kind of build a community here, right? So anyway, um, yeah, bummer. I don't even know if BJ heard it or if he liked it or if it was okay, but it's out there. I also wanted to read off some requests. We got a bunch. Um, all these new people are finding us thanks to the Stuck in the 80s podcast i was on for pat denizio so we got a bunch um joe patch or pack not sure joe um it wasn't more it wasn't really a request more that um 
Shonen Knife, the band Shonen Knife, have come up as a request many times in the past. And he knows them and uh, thinks he has an in for me. So all you people who have requested Shonen Knife over the years, uh, that looks like we're going to be able to make that one happen. Vincent oh, Gugliamini? Boy, I hope I'm saying that right, Vincent. I'm sorry. He requested Tommy Conwell. Tommy Conwell is another very popular request. I, I think I've mentioned this before. I don't know. So Richard Bush of the A's was on about a year ago, and I he knows Tommy Conwell. And so I asked him to sort of put in a good word for me, maybe connect me up. He gave me Tommy's phone number. I have called and texted many times. At one point, he said he was going on vacation, and we would talk afterwards, and then I never heard from him again. And I check in every few months. I think he's one of these people who is incognito on purpose. And I've talked to somebody else, uh, podcaster Steve Cooper, if you ever listen to Cooper Talk. he's uh, I believe he's from Philly, and he has had the exact same experience trying to, co- uh, trying to track down Tommy Conwell. So I don't know. That may never happen. I, I, just, I wish it did, but I, 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 don't know how to, I don't know what more to do. Christy Rutger, Rutiger, geez, I'm, I suck at this, uh, requested the bravery, which is a really good idea. Now they're more, they're more modern, but that's fine. I don't, we're not just, we focus mostly on the seventies, eighties and nineties, but not, you know, um, specifically. So yeah, the bravery, that's a good idea. Jeff Young came with a big list, rank and file. Good one. The Dead Milkmen. I have reached out to Rodney Anonymous and have not heard back. It's funny. Uh, John Pasden, who requested Bruce T- uh, Thomas a couple weeks ago and was a guest when we talked with him about Pez Band and Off-Broadway, uh, at the same time that he requested Bruce Thomas, he also requested Rodney. And I said, you know, I've heard Rodney on other podcasts, and the guy is completely unhinged. He doesn't really drop character, you know? He's that sort of crazy, manic nutty guy all the time. And I, I, you know, we like to try and be a little more introspective on here. And John had a good point. He said, that's, that makes it sound like it's even more fun. So who knows? There may be complete chaos. If I ever talk to Rodney Anonymous, I, uh, I've tried, I think it, I know at least once, maybe twice, never heard back. I'll try again. We'll see what we can find. Uh, Jeff had requested anyone else besides Todd Rundgren that had been in Utopia. Uh, Utopia and Todd are both requests that I get a lot. We'll see. Um, then he lists Bad Manners, which is a band I, I know, but I don't know that well. The Fall. <laughs> Anyone from The Fall? That could be tough. Um, mainly because I try to listen to everything that the person I guess, I, the guest that I'm talking to has done. And there's like a million Fall albums. And I have... The Fall's Greatest Hits, and maybe like one or two other things. So that would require a lot of work, but I'm open to it. <clears throat> Heaven 17, which is a great idea. They are on my list as well. In fact, I may have reached out to them before. I can't remember. I saw actually that they are finally, I think next year, touring in the U.S. for the first time ever. So maybe they'd be a little more open to talking to somebody over here. And then In Spiral Carpets, which is another great idea. They are also on my list, and I hadn't reached out to them yet. And then Greg Blanchard had requested Jim Scoffish, which, boy, that that is going back. I have not thought about Scoffish forever. So I um, that's a good idea. i got to do a little more homework on Scoffish, kind of re... re uh, um, 
get reacquainted with them. But anyway, all good requests. Thanks everybody for those. Now I'm going to read a couple of, uh, of reviews. These are all really short. I don't know why, but they're short. First of all, Firebird3131 gave it five stars. Thank you. Very informative. I give it five stars based on the guests and the interviews. Love the stories and learning about the business side of the music industry. Sometimes the quality of the phone conversations can be difficult to understand, but don't let it deter you from listening. That is very, very true. Um, I hear that a lot. But anyway, thank you, Firebird. Decibel Geek, the legendary Decibel Geek. Uh, five stars, fascinating show. John does a great job. Coming from them, that means a lot. Asking interesting questions with fascinating guests. If you want a great insight into the inner workings of the business, as well as how artists handle life after the fame recedes, this is a perfect glimpse. Love it. Thanks, guys. I appreciate that. I love you, too. And then Red Bull 73 gives five stars. An awesome listen. Many shows try to use the word hustle in their title, but there is only one real hustle in town. Great show. Check it out. Thank you, Red Bull 73. Uh, I wanted to tell everybody, I basically almost entirely reconnected last week. That week between Christmas and New Year's. My family, we go to Utah every year and we spend it visiting family and friends and it's pretty tightly packed and crazy. And honestly, I kind of enjoyed it. Not that I don't love everybody, but I, uh, it was nice to just sort of step away from the internet, not, not just the podcast, but everything for a few days. So I know that I owe a lot of you emails and I probably didn't comment as often as I should have on posts and I probably didn't retweet things or whatever. I know I'm way behind. If you're listening to this on post day, I'm back at work. And what better time to, you know, get back on some personal emails than when you're at work. Am I right? So anyway, we're back to normal. Uh, but I, it was, I disconnected for a week and I have to admit it was kind of nice. So anyway, let's get back to Michael Camacho. We missed the mark from a production yeah. value standpoint. We, that's a classic ballad brilliant fucking ballad that I wrote that I'll never forget and yeah. I cherish. But they didn't understand that. That's yeah. the thing. Mm. And, uh, Courier and Spradley, as talented as Spradley was, they did not get that kind of tune. Yeah. Even Stay True, even Stay True fell shy of where I really wanted it to be. It was a more, it had, you speak of the system, it had more of a system sound than it did its own sound, a slight box yeah. sound, and more importantly, my sound. So if I were to record that tune again, it would it would be a whole other ball of wax. And uh, anyway, so um, anyway, well, well, I want to I want to ask you though about the heights of this because you had it sounds like you had been sort of grinding it out for a few years, and right. maybe being a member of Sly Fox, a pop group or an yes. R&B group, was not necessarily in the cards. It's happening, and you have a top ten hit. And I, right. there's a clip of you on Solid Gold. I'm guessing you're starting to reap some of the uh, benefits of being a, a rock star. I don't know right. how. I mean, you're probably going out there on tour. You're probably having girls throw their panties on the stage. What's yeah. how, you know? How is your life changing going from nobody to the guy in Sly Fox that's got this hot song? <laughs> Kid from Brooklyn. Yeah. Kid, you know, a kid from Brooklyn, a greasy kid from Brooklyn, self-taught, self-educated, grew up in a tough neighborhood, real macho environment, 
an artist. Yeah. Two completely, you know, like a, dichot- a dichotomous life upbringing, right? Yeah. My mom was a singer. She didn't do anything with it, you know, because in those days, singers were whores. <laughs> you know, right. A woman in the entertainment industry was a whore. You know, sure. or a prostitute. Anyway, um, so she didn't get, but she, my family got to live vicariously through me, and they supported it. I was fortunate. They loved what I was doing, and Good. they didn't have the education or the connections to help me make it, but they did whatever they had to do to make sure that I was on that track. And, you know, I grew up in a tough neighborhood. You know, I grew up around, you know, wise guys, and you name it. It was, mm-hmm. it was a tough neighbor. So, and in the 70s, not to give my age away or anything like that, <laughs> but uh, no, <laughs> no, I feel good for my age. But the, the thing is, is, oh yeah, I do. I celebrate good. it all the time. Good. Actually, I'm just getting started, John, which is a story I want to share with you at some point. If we get to okay. Um, um, and it's for people out there. I think people of our generation should hear this piece of the story. But anyway, cool. the question was about, okay, so, you How know, your life was, changed? my life changed. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. I mean, John, it was crazy because, and it was everything I imagined it to be, by the way, um, really? with the with the women, and it was off the charts. Yeah. Different girl in every port, you know, as they say. And, sure. You know, and if I showed back up in that town, there she was. I mean, it was totally, it was a life, without question, to be a celebrity or to be in a position of fame and fortune, is a, there's a power in that that, at the end of the day, for me, in retrospect, is illusory. It's illusory because it's all bullshit, in my opinion. It's not the way to live, in my opinion. And I'm not coming from some moral place. I'm just talking from a visceral, spiritual, and metaphysical place. In the cosmic scheme of things, it's not the way to live. I don't support it, but it was utter decadence. Whatever I wanted, Mr. Camacho, what would you like? If I wanted drugs, booze, women, this, that, you know, all I had to go was snap my finger and it was there. Yeah. If I saw a gal that was in the audience that I really wanted to meet, I'd get the you know, all I had to do was tell Rody, go get go get her. You yeah. Know, bring her to the bring her to the tour bus or bring her to the hotel or bring her to, you know, the backstage. Yep. I wanna meet. It's yeah. that crazy. Now yeah. I'm not trying to put it down. I don't want to come off like some, you know, haughty, snotty, you know, arrogant, you know, uh, you know, shooting down on my fellow yeah. celebrities or anything like that. Hey. But it's it's out of control, you know, and it's out of control. Why? Because it's disproportionate to reality. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, it, and it's it's a lot of it's a lot of information. And I'm just I'm not just talking about the partying and the and the fra- and the philandering and the and the lifestyle. But just this is what happens for me while I was enjoying it all. It was slapping me left and right in the face because reality was there for me yeah. regarding it. But when I was stepping outside of myself to look at what was going on, I, I was like, this is, this is not really happening. <laughs> you know, yeah. something almost not right about it in a way, right? Mm-hmm. For example, so 
I'm uh, headlining at the Universal Amphitheater, and I had this groupy gal that was with me who was like, she looked like she was right out of a Marilyn Monroe photo. You know, it was just like ridiculous. And she's hanging on my arm, and we're in the green room, and after the concert, and all the executives, and everybody who's anybody who's everybody is there. And one of the executives, and our guys, one of the top guys, mm-hmm. very known throughout the industry, is hitting on the girl that I'm with, right? Mm-hmm. It was, and he was, a, he was not a young guy. He was like a middle-aged guy, you know? And mm-hmm. I'm looking at this, and I'm going, wow. And the funny, the funny thing was, I was kind of like in, you know, you know, like one of those dazed and confused moments where, like, everything's it's silhouetted and you're in the middle of it, and everything's like kind of revolving around you, yeah. and you're like in this dream state, right? So all of a sudden, a voice behind me, in my ear, whispers in my ear. It's a woman's voice, and she says, "It's gonna be okay." And I, it snaps me out, and I turn around, and she was one of the uh, executives from the R&B division, black woman, great uh-huh. lady, can't remember her name for the life of me. She was always comforting to me about stuff. Oh, nice. She was, yeah. it was like a human, there was a humanness to my exchanges with her. But she surprised me with that, because she came out of nowhere, and I hadn't seen her prior to that moment, because there was a lot of, you know, people taking photos, blah, blah, sure. blah, blah. A lot of confusion. And she, I looked and I saw her and she was walking off. She was like about 10 feet away from me at that point. And I looked at her and she turned at me, turned to me and winked at me. Uh-huh. Nice. It's one, one of those moments, you know. Like she's an angel. Like a little angel, exactly. Yeah, bringing you a, so, a, an important message. Yeah, like to ground me. Yeah, and 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 I said I tell that story to set up a story how it affected me and how it impinged on me for better or for worse. We were in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, we're touring the country, and you know, let's face it, I'm 26 years old, years young. Uh-huh. I mean, sure. what did we what did we know at that time, right? I mean, <laughs> as smart as a smart as a rascal as I was, I, I didn't yeah. know squat, right? right? So. Anyway, and I was a philosophy major in college, this and that. I had a sense of metaphysics, all the great philosophers, and I had that kind of brain. Uh-huh. So I always looked at things through that prism, you know. So mm-hmm. what we would do, and we'd have a layover, and we had some time to kill before we went to the next city or town or whatever it was that we were performing, doing concerts in. What we would do is the kids, the fans would be outside the tour bus. And we had a brand-new 1986 tour bus at the time. And I remember we would allow the fans, a select group of fans, to come and hang out with us on the bus, Mm. right? And we Mm -hmm. had two lounges, one in the front, one in the back, right? And so in the back lounge and a bunch of these kids, about, I don't know, six or or eight of them, I can't remember. It's me, Gary, a couple of musicians, and we're all bullshitting talking, and they were young. They were like 20, something like that, 19, 20, 21, whatever. And uh, this young white kid, college kid, obviously middle, middle, mid, you know, 
uh, middle-class kid, grew up in the suburbs of Madison, Wisconsin, and he needed to talk to me. And this kid had our poster in his dorm, uh-huh. Sly Fox, on his wall, okay? Uh-huh. Everything I always dreamed to have, right? Sure. The kind of the accolades, the, you know, the fanfare, mm-hmm. whatever. It's all happening. So the kid wanted to talk to me about his struggles, and he was 20. And the kid had a budding career as a professional hockey player. Okay, he was going to have a professional, it was a bona fide, the real deal hockey player. And it was curtailed or, or, or destroyed because of his drug. Huh. O, o, he OD'd on drugs, survived it, and wiped everything out. Lost his, his girlfriend, broke up with him, it was a whole thing. And he wanted to share that with me, and he wanted my advice. Now, I'm a kid in the streets of New York from Brooklyn. Yeah, I'm an artist, okay, and I've been exposed, okay, to a lot, but I'm still a kid, too. Yeah. Right? And he wanted my advice. That's crazy. Talk about, talk about in total insanity, right? So yeah. I didn't know what to say to this kid, and I have a lot to say about a lot <laughs> of things. You know? I have a lot of opinions. As a matter of fact, I don't need yours. I'll give you yours. Right. You know? right. Like, so... And and I was relentless back in those days. At least today, I listen to people. <laughs> anyway, I so I got to poke fun of myself. But anyway, I didn't know what to say to this kid, John, for the life of me. And he needed some comfort and yeah. some solace in what he was, because he was like a suicidal kid. Oh, boy. And anyway, we're at, fast forward, the same question, this question you're asking me, uh, a journalist, from a syndicated industry paper, interviewed us at Capitol Records, actually at a hotel in Hollywood, around up the street from Capitol Records, about what was exciting, what was good, what did what did we like about what was happening to us, and what yeah. did we not like about what was happening to us? I told him what I liked, and so did Gary, and what he didn't like, and then I got to what I didn't like, and I told them that story about that kid. Yeah. He says, well, what, what, what is it? What was wrong with that? Said, what was wrong with it? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's commentary that speaks to a society and a culture that puts people like us, I don't care if you're a politician, mm. you know, whatever, in this iconoclastic realm and you become this God-like, demigod, whatever, and people are conditioned and, if you will, brainwashed to co-sign that. So you're down here and we're up there. Yeah. You were were sober enough, I mean sober-minded enough at the time, to realize that at the height of your fame in 1986? With all the drugs and alcohol I was doing, I was sober enough to realize. Why? Because I was one of those guys that were, I was a binger. Uh, so I would go lengths of time doing it, and then I would go lengths of time not doing it because I never wanted to be, my image was more important than the reality of the situation. Sure. 
I want him never to be perceived as a guy that didn't have a shit together. You understand? Yeah. So I had a very most people. I was a bit, you know, I was a bit, I was dastardly and sneaky about my alcohol use and drug use. Even my my stone cold boozers and and druggers that I knew and was associated with and was in professionally speaking in the circles I was in and just in general, they never knew how bad I had it. Yeah. Because I had such a thing about controlling the perception of others of me. I was paranoid about that. And that was more important than if I was feeling bad or good. (laughs) Yeah. So, I'm, I'm just amazed. I'm impressed that you had the wisdom and the foresight then to answer a question like that. That sounds like well, somebody who's been through it all would say after the fact, you know? Well, yeah, well, I thank you. But here's the thing. It's a, I, it's a, the, the statement I'm making is equivalent to what we do as actors, because I'm also an actor. I was a theater right. major and a philosophy major in college, okay, uh-huh. which I didn't finish, just for the record, to be to keep it green and honest. Sure. But uh-huh. we call that breaking the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. As actors, audience, and you're, you're supposed to be in a real moment, but you're not. But that's what we do as actors. And there's a fourth wall between the actors on stage or in the film and the audience. And we all agree that this is really happening when we're watching the performance. So it's the same thing. Uh-huh. By that, with that interview, I was breaking the fourth wall. Makes sense. And that journalist was taken back by that because in those days, those days, those were the last days of how much you were allowed to say as a star, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Everything was controlled 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago in the entertainment industry. You right. didn't know if someone was gay when they were gay. I was kept right. under wraps, yeah. you know, or whatever. They didn't like, you know, I, I got to say, the executives and the, the record people, they didn't like the fact that I gave that interview that way. I was gently I told, it. very indirectly, you need to change the way you do your interviews. <laughs> yeah, I believe you know, it. They don't, want, they don't want you to break that, you know, the image, sure. the power of the image, because the power of the image, just like we have now with the media, media is controlled by the very people that employ them, right? So they, mm-hmm. they you know... That's supposed, we're supposed to believe what the media says because they're, they're supposed to be separate, but they're not really, you know, yeah. uh, the ups and downs. One of the things I didn't like, we did an interview on MTV. I'll never, I've always, this was always a thorn in my spirit because I don't like to operate from a place ultimately, even though, ironically, I was sneaky about my booze and all that. I wanted to tell the truth always. Yeah. So I didn't like being part of something that I was not telling the truth. So we did an interview on camera with United Way. Ask me if I know what United Way does <laughs> or if I saw a facility of United Way. <laughs> not a damn thing. They didn't invite uh, us to a site. They didn't show us where these kids were. Whatever it was that they were promoting at the time, I didn't answer them. Yeah. Because it's my obligation because I have to do that because I'm a celebrity and now I gotta fucking do that. Right. Well, I'll do I'm all I'm all about being of service. I'll do and be of help wherever. Just let me know what the hell that I'm doing. You know, and at that time I wasn't quick enough 
you know, with the trigger to go, hey, well, okay, so I'm going to do an ad for you, so what is it that I'm doing an ad for? I'm sp- you're telling me what to say, but what is it that you- let me see what it is that I'm saying, because if I were to do, do that now, that's what I would do. You know, if that happened to me now, I'd say, hey, you know, either way, that's nice. I'm glad this sounds nice. Can you take me to where it is that you're doing all these good things that you say you're doing? <laughs> How about that for a little uh, You know what I mean? Nice. I mean really. I mean, yeah. Now, today, today, you don't have to control. You can say whatever the fuck you please, right? True. True, yeah. Yeah, you're walking around with your pants down, and people are like, you know, it's, it's no big deal. Right? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so what else? Okay. So how did Sly Fox then come to an end? You had a hit. Nothing else quite landed off of that album. Was there not enough juice at Capitol Records? Did they not believe in Ted Courier or Spradley or whatever their names were to, like, keep this thing going? Because that you can't even find that album. Did that album ever even come out on CD? You can't even see the video on YouTube. It's like it no, it's, never happened. No, the video's on YouTube. I just tried, and, and it, I was in the wrong country. It was, like, blocked in my country. I don't know. Maybe I'll keep trying. There's, Maybe it's um, in there somewhere. There's, some, there's some licensing thing that's going on in Europe. The people that control it. When I say video, I mean the official video. There's lots of, like, lyric videos and stuff like that of the song, but the official video, I couldn't get it to pop up. For whatever it's worth, there's some licensing issues with that video okay. that are controlled by some P- a company out of England. Uh, and I don't care what it is. Sometimes it's up on YouTube, sometimes it isn't. Yeah, okay. Um, so why did that? Um, okay. What was that TV show, show, the game show, $10,000? What was it, Pyramid? What was that show? Pyramid, uh-huh. What was it, a thousand, a million-dollar question, whatever it is? Uh, who wants to be a millionaire? Who wants to be a millionaire? <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, oh, God, John. Oh, the $64,000 question, is that the what you're $64, saying? $64,000 question, that was the one. Thank you, sir. Thank you very sure. much. Sure. Now we're showing our age is where it gets dark and hairy. Uh-oh. Okay. Why did it happen? First of all, A, there was plenty of juice. Capitol Records was full-on buying us. The problem was, Gary and I weren't getting along because we had two separate managers. That sounds prickly. Not good. Um, yeah. I had a white manager. He had a black Ooh. Oh, we um, call it cultural I, differences. Well, the thing was is that I don't know if it was cultural. It wasn't cultural at all. It wasn't, to be honest, for me it wasn't about white or black. I mean, I had a manager already, and he had a manager already. So who was going to be the manager? Uh, okay. it, was, it was a business issue, okay? Okay. And Gary felt that because he was older, than me and had more success as an artist than me by virtue of Bootsy Collins working with Bootsy in the early days and building his career and then George Clinton and Funkadelic. So this track record was without question stronger than mine. You know, right. never argued with that. But as far as level of talent, you know, we were equal. You know, yeah. so yeah. we were equals. And that I know he struggled with, um, 
He respected me, but he struggled with it. He loved working yeah. with me, but he struggled with it. And that's, okay. you know, you know, we're walking contradictions as human beings, correct? Sure. So, sure. and then, you know, it didn't help matters on a certain level because his manager didn't know squat about the business. He didn't know squat, and he had nothing to do with Gary's career. Mm. And my guy was a nice guy who was in the New York scene. He was all about being part of the team. Mm -hmm. But there was some, I would say there were some projected cultural issues coming from Gary's camp. Got it. Okay. And they And it became a thing where, I didn't want to have a black manager, which was bullshit. Yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? So it's like you give me a, a, a give me a manager who's got weight, who can pull, can has got carries a big bat, and can make things happen for us. This yeah. guy I had no allegiance to his manager. He didn't get me my deal. He didn't make the deal. He didn't make the deal for Gary. The deal no. was already in play. It was already the deal was already structured. There was nothing anybody could negotiate about that. It was a fixed rate, if you will, deal. This is what you're getting. We were like hired guns. Yeah. So that's it. And, and you know, and even George Clinton got a piece of the action because it was Gary coming from the Funkadelics, which I didn't oh, appreciate. I personally didn't. I didn't appreciate that, quite frankly, because I didn't know George Clinton. Yeah. You know? Why is he getting a piece of something that I'm doing? I didn't I didn't understand that. Yeah. And there was nothing I could do about that, you see. And then it became about this cultural thing, and they started projecting that I didn't want a black manager, which I stated already, which was not true. You know, if Quincy Jones were involved in the project and he said, go with this guy, then it would be a different story. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because I know, yeah. you know, we're talking about Quincy Jones. He's the yeah. godfather, as far as I'm concerned. Sure. I, I, you know, I kiss his ring. Did the fact that they could actually make that reference, because uh, I'm ethnically very strong. Number one, number two, I always, I, I toured for a year. Oh, I forgot to tell you that. In '83, I had when I was right before I got approached by Ted Curry about doing the duo. Guess who I was on the road with for a whole year touring? Who? The main ingredient. Cuba Gooding Jr.'s dad, Cuba Gooding Sr., may he rest in peace. Really? I was a 23-year-old buck in 1983 touring the world with the main ingredient. I took Tony Sylvester's place, and I was on the road with the Shy Lights, Billy Paul, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Major Harris, all of my idols. They were my fucking idols. And I was the token, quote-unquote, white boy. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was fucking ridiculous. And I was 23, and I was a kid with all these veterans on tour. That is great. And for Gary and his guys, you know, to accuse me of being, you know, not wrong yeah. black manager was a slap in the face and an insult. Sure. You know what I mean? And, you know, I went to a, a high school that was all black. You know, in Brooklyn. Right. You know I mean, come on, guys, give me a break. You know, it was like a real. Excuse that. It was a real. It was a real insult. Yeah. You know, so um, uh, okay. and it got it, it just got worse from there. 
They're also from the Nation of Islam. Oh, okay. Now, I have nothing against, right. folks. Please, nobody misinterpret this. Sure. Nothing against the Nation of Islam. Uh, every so often, I tune into, you know, Louis Farrakhan and listen to what he has to say. Sure. Uh, he's a great speaker, you know, and he's a lot to say. You know, and just so everybody knows, I've been in, I was in Shea Stadium once during when uh, Goose Gossage and, uh, not Goose Gossage, uh, Gooden, Doc Gooden and the New York Mets of the mid-80s, the championship Mets, and I'm in the stadium with friends of mine, black, Hispanic, and white, and some white guys were cursing and calling him names, Doc Gooden, because he wasn't having a good day, and they were saying some uh-huh. very nasty things. And I, being a street kid, an artist and a street kid, who can handle himself, right. called those guys out because I didn't appreciate that kind of talk. And security came and everything else. And so, you know, when I got, when that button was pushed, I took umbrage with it and I took offense to it. But those guys were not, they were not really looking out for Gary and they weren't looking out for me and they had to get off the road. Yeah. You know, so, and so... Finally, Gary had an epiphany, and he got rid of them, and we got a new manager, and we got the manager from who we just grabbed the first guy we could get because we were so desperate because the record label was trying to like, who are we talking to? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So we got sense. the manager. We got the manager who was always around when we were touring of the Jets. Remember the Jets? Sure, of course. That manager was a big burly guy. He reminded me, he reminded me of Colonel Tom Park, Parker, the Ellis uh-huh. President manager. Uh-huh. He had that kind of vibe, you know. Uh-huh. And he was, he was like a big Joel, uh, you know, uh, uh, jolly kind of guy. And and I and I liked him, you know. So we we both liked him, and we we signed with him. Ultimately, too late though, right? It was too late in the game because by the time we hit Washington D.C., we were not getting along. Mm-hmm. I was arguing. It was really petty. I think he was not enjoying the fact that I was having a great time, mm. and you know, and uh, okay. the girls, the girls liked me, and you yeah. know, what can I say? Right. And it became okay. a male, male, male thing, you know. And, yeah. um, and I decided. I called. I can't remember his name. The jet manager. I called him up and I said, "Listen, I want a ticket." Washington, D.C., I want to go home. I'm getting off the road. Yeah. Let them figure it out. I, I think I peaked out here. I think I've reached my quota and my limit. And um, we're not getting along. And I'm not going to, not pointing fingers, but I, I can't, I, as smart as I am, and, uh, you know, I pride myself in make, working things out. I can't, I'm not superhuman. Right. Something bad could happen if we keep it up this way. And that was right around the time we were all talking about doing the next record. And uh, we had done Solid Gold on our way. We had done Top of the Pops in England. We had to go back to Europe and Japan to do more TV shows and stuff. And I just got off the road and I said, I'm done. And I, I shut it out down. And in that time period, I hung out in places in New York that were celebrity Oasis is, if you will, hangouts okay. for people in the industry. This one place on the Upper West Side, owned by one of the partners was Barishnikov. Yeah. One of the partners was um, the guy who owned the Improv Comedy Club. 
All right. Uh, I forget his name. Passed away a while ago. Um, I think De Niro had a piece of the of the place, yeah. and it was an amazing place because now I had reached celebrity. Right mm-hmm. now, I was considered a minor celebrity. You know, you'd have the likes, and I could be sitting at the table with Sean Penn, you know, Sylvester Stallone, Joe Pesci, you know, Paul Sorvino, sure. Raul Julia, Raul Julia, Ruben Blades, uh, Kevin Spacey. Right. I can go down the list. This is relentless. I mean, you know, you had everybody from the directors to movie stars to recording artists to you name it. And right. um, I was fortunate enough to be able to be able now because I was just minor celebrity sit at those tables. You know, Sam yeah. Shepard, Christopher Walken. I used to get drunk with Christopher Walken, Sam Shepard. You know, <laughs> it was great. You know what I mean? And yeah. in that place, I what happened was when I left. Sly Fox, you know, of course, all the executives were calling me left and right. Um, you know, they were like, what's happening? Call us back. And I just shut it down, you know. Yeah. And uh, I went to work for a childhood friend of mine who I grew up with. Uh, and uh, he owned a, an Italian restaurant. He actually was a partner of an Italian restaurant on on, uh, on the West Village. And... Uh, I decided to just go work at his restaurant. It was a small little place, and it was it was quaint, and it was uh, and and I was like the host maitre d' of the place. That's got to feel and so weird, though. You've just you've weird. got a hit song, and you've been on the road, and groupies and drugs, and now you're the host at a Italian restaurant within weeks. Right. It was weird, and I lived in the East Village like I do now. And I lived off uh, right off St. Mark's Place here in the East Village in Lower Manhattan, Lower East Side. And I needed to touch the ground, though, John. Yeah. It's important that the kids will never. There's a lot of young artists that I'm sure are going to listen to this, I would assume. And I want them to understand that dreams are important. Dreams drive us, and we should never live without dreams. We must always have. We can fly all we want, but we gotta be we gotta have our feet on the ground. So we have both ends of the spectrum covered and protected. Right. Because we could we a lot of us die as a result of not having our feet on the ground. A lot of us don't make it. O D drugs get killed, whatever, end up in jail, whatever, end up strung out, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know, the fantasy of being a star or a celebrity in fame and fortune is a, there's a price to pay. It's a great price. It can be a great life, but you got to live it well for it to be a great life. Yeah. If you're not living well and you're acting like a like a jackass, well, you know, and you know, and the and the hubris of celebrity and fame sets it gets its way. And you become this a beast of a person, and you're not to be liked or trusted or, you know, easy to be around because that happens. Yeah. Left, right, and center. You know, um, you know, I needed to touch the ground, John. There you have it, Michael Camacho. 
perfect request, Jay. Thank you so much for requesting Sly Fox. That is exactly the right kind of band for us to cover in this podcast. So we actually ran out of time. Um, I had allotted a couple of hours to talk to Michael, which is normally more than enough time. But we got off to a late start. And then Michael told actually... A, a really long story about when he met David Bowie. And it's interesting, but it, it went on for about 40 minutes before I had to cut him off so we could I could do something else. Um, I'm thinking we may, and coincidentally, Brad Elvis of last week's, last week's guest also told a kind of a long Bowie story that we had to cut out for time. So we may put both of those stories together in a bonus episode uh, later on, but that's unfortunately that's why we ran out of time. So just to give you a little bit of a postscript on Michael, he did some acting. Uh, in 2006, he put out a solo album called Just For You, which is more of like a Sinatra crooner album. This is the title track from that song right here. That, I think you can find this on iTunes. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's out there. So anyway, that's the deal. Now, next week, I haven't decided yet what I'm going to run next week. I still have like seven or eight interviews in the can, and um, I'm not sure which one to go with next. It's either going to be an alternative, uh, almost avant-garde female singer from the late 80s, early 90s, or a yacht rock legend, or I'll run that R&B band that that got bumped a couple of weeks ago. That's kind of what I'm leaning toward is one of those. Anyway, we'll see. We'll see what we do. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man, my buddy, Yan the Man Makiewicz, for putting this together. Thank you, pal. And uh, if you you know the deal by now, guys, you can find us on Facebook and like the page. You can communicate with us that way. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We will see you next Tuesday. Thanks, everyone. Just for me, I hope it lasts.